Romans chapter 10. And Lord, here we are before you, your children. Speak to us and feed us from your word we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, remember back in chapter 9. Paul had said in verse 3, as he's saying, my, I'm not lying, I'm telling the truth in the Holy Spirit. I have a continual grief for the Jewish people. And I myself could be a curse for them, that they could go to heaven and I would go to hell. I would be willing to do it. And then he goes on in that chapter and says how God has elected those who are going to be believers to be believers. And we know from other scriptures, it happened before the foundations of the world. And so, from even though Ishmael was from the lineage of Abraham, as well as he had a number of other sons, Isaac was the chosen. And then we see at the same time, they were born twins, Esau and Jacob. The younger was chosen over the older when before they had yet been born. God had chosen them. And so we saw in chapter 9 this supernatural, this divine election before time ever began that God, knowing the future, chose those uh, who would believe upon him and those who he chose to believe in him. He proposed in advance to his wife, uh, the church. And so there's this very heady, this very... Um, supernatural and, and awe-inspiring concept that God chose you. Now we come to chapter 10, and he starts out again. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Now in this chapter, in chapter 9, he showed the election of God. Chapter 10, he's going to show the free will of man. In chapter 9, he showed how God is the initiator of salvation. In chapter 10, he shows it's essential that man be responder. To salvation. And so he says, I'm still on that same theme. My heart's desire is that Israel, the Jewish people, would be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so he says very clearly that the Jews, they are wonderful people, as all creatures on this earth are wonderful because God's made every single one of them. And read back in Genesis 1, all that God made was good. Everything God's created is wonderful and beautiful. However, man is a free will agent. He is a man that has to choose his own destiny. He has the power of choice. In this one way, he is equal to man. He has to choose. He has to decide for himself what his destiny will be. Now, the Bible makes it clear that if God, if we are not submitted unto God, we are not following his plan, his purpose for our life, that way that seems right unto a man will end in destruction. The Bible says that even good intentions, good desires, without counsel, the counsel of God is what it's referring to, will go awry. There's only one way, one truth, and one life that will bring a life of fruitfulness and a life of blessing and a life of true joy in the Lord. 
and that is following Christ. However, man can also choose against God and choose to reject that plan that God has. And Israel, very zealous, very religious people, very um, desirous people for God in their own way. Now, let's make it clear. Back in chapter 3, once again, turn to Romans chapter 3. Remember in verse 10. There's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3 verse 11. There's none who understands. There's none who what? Seeks after God. They have all gone out of the way. They have together become unprofitable. There's none good. There's none who does good. No, not one. So people, instead of seeking God, they create a religion in which makes them comfortable in their concepts of God. So I don't want God to tell me to not to whatever it is, not to lust or not to lie or not to uh, live a certain way. So I'll create a God who thinks that that is the noble way to live. So God tells me, that I can't divorce, let's say, or I can't commit adultery. Well, I don't like that. So I reject your God, but I want you to know I'm very zealous for God, but this concept of God over here, my God tells me, and now I have a church and I have a religion that tells me, live and let live. Don't be judgmental. Everybody's right as long as they're not killing somebody. Everybody's good as long as they have their true belief system and they're following that system, then that system that's right for them is good and right because it feels right to them. Therefore, it is right. And so leave them alone. Who are you to tell them their belief system's wrong? And that's the whole spirit of our age today. And the answer is truth is truth. If we all agreed that up was down and down was up, and we all sincerely agreed together and believed it, and it seemed right to you, it's still wrong. It's still backwards. So man can believe whatever he says he wants to believe. It doesn't make it true. Truth is truth because God created it true. And God didn't say, thou shalt not commit adultery, to put restrictions upon us. He said that because that is the way of truth. And he has made you to work in a certain way. And if you walk outside that certain way, you'll stop working. In the joy, in the purpose, in the fulfillment, in the intimacy with God, and in the, the personal satisfaction of this life, will stop at the moment you walk off that narrow road that leads to life. Now, if I borrowed your car... And I see that it's out of gas and I go home and I get the water hose and start filling up the gas tank. And you say, you just totally destroyed my car. What are you talking about? You're only supposed to put gas in the tank of that car. Oh, you're so narrow-minded. You must be a Christian. You know, I am not going to allow you to put these mores upon me. I'm the type of guy that has a different belief system, and you're just going to have to receive it. I'm okay, you're okay, and live and let live, and just be happy, and don't put this upon me, man. I'm free. Well, the bottom line is, is the car's going to get about 
10 feet down the road and it's going to stop and the engine's destroyed. In the same way, man is breaking down. It doesn't happen in 10 feet. It may take 10 years. But man is breaking down. Our society is pretty well destroyed. 40%, almost 40%, 95% of our society right now is being raised by a single parent. Either the mom or the dad is raising the kids. Marriage. There's more divorce going on than marriage. Babies in the name of freedom are being aborted, put to death. You can go to the bookstore and you can see numbers of books now on children that were aborted but lived. And they're around to tell you the story. Maimed because of the saline solution that burnt their body and, and limbs that are ripped off their body by the doctors as he's ripping the fetus out of the womb. They're maimed, they're burned, but they're alive. And they're very much human. And so again, we see that society is destroying. You can't walk the streets at night. We have all kinds of venereal diseases that people are dying from. And now we have AIDS. We have murder and rape and incest and child molestation and on and on and on. Our society is breaking down. And so, again, to say, well, zeal equals rightness with God. Sincerity equals rightness with God. Are you telling me the Hare Krishna who's down there with his ponytail and banging on his tambourine saying, Hare Hare Krishna, Krishna Rama Rama is going to go to hell because he doesn't believe in your God and your way? Well, look at the teachings of the Krishnas. Look at what they say. It's obvious that it's a lie. It's obvious that it's a false religious system based upon what man feels is right and what he wants to believe God is and is thinking. And he's therefore established a religion in which he himself will enjoy without having a relationship with God. Interesting that the commentaries I read, uh, which is about five or six of them, on tonight, every one of them made note here that within even the Christian church today, most of the people that go to church aren't truly born again. That most of the, most of the Christian churches have become country club. They become to tell you what you want to hear. They're preaching a gospel that any non-Christian can say, hey, that's, that's good, that's right. You know, that's, that's the way it should be. It's basically, you know, don't kick your dog and be nice to your neighbor and put a few bucks in every year to help the guy starving on the other side of the world and live and let live. It's that type of gospel that basically says, no, there isn't sin, you don't have to repent, and you don't have to get your, right, your life right with the Lord. And so the seven churches of Revelation are never mentioned. And sin and hell and damnation and not being right with God because you're living after another God or living after another passion is not taught. And so the Jewish system was built around that, heading in that direction. Jesus was very much against it, preached against it, taught against it, and was eventually killed by those religious people, put to death because he bucked their religious system. And today, if you go into Judaism, you will find the very social gospel that Jesus was against. 
Today, they have Yom Kippur, which was the day, according to the Bible, when the high priest goes in, sacrifices on behalf of all the people, goes into the Holy of Holy, puts the blood sacrifice upon the mercy seat, prays for the sins to be forgiven of the country. Well, there is no temple. There is no priest. There are no sacrifices being made. So what do the Jews say now? The week before Yom Kippur, you try to undo your bad things you did and try to do some extra good things to balance out. So hopefully, in that week before Yom Kippur, you are setting and saying to yourself, have I done more goods than I have bads this year? And hopefully the answer is yes. And so you decide. And so when the day of atonement comes, everybody gets together and they have this church service basically saying, I hope you've been a better person this year than you were the year before. But what does the Bible say? There's none good, no, not one. There's none who seeks after God. So either the Bible's right or wrong. But the Hare Christians, they seem so sincere. I don't doubt their sincerity. They seem so zealous. I don't doubt their, sin- their zealousness. They really believe they're seeking God. I don't doubt their self-deception. But that's what it is, self-deception. They're not yielding their life, saying, God, use me as you please. They have a religion where they have acceptance from one another. They have a religion that allows them to do certain fleshly things that they want to do, giving in to their flesh, the way they want to give in their flesh, and are still right with God. That's what the religion is. They can do what they want. They can live as they please. In certain degrees, and certain degrees that doesn't really matter to them, they're seeing some self-sacrifice in areas that doesn't really matter, and they're still right with God. And so again... He's not doubting their zeal, but they have a religious system that is not according to knowledge in verse 2. Jesus constantly pointed this out to them, trying to point to them the true knowledge. For example, over in Luke chapter 15, you remember that story, no doubt. Starting there in verse 11. Remember the two sons... And the younger son said, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And in verse 13, And not many days after, the younger, brother, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he, Y2K, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to the citizens of that country, And he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. Now, swine aren't kosher to Jews, as you know. So this is about as bottom as you can get. And no one gave him anything. And in verse 17, And when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And his son said to him, 
Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father said to his servant, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came, he drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, because he has received him safe and sound. Your father has killed the fatted calf. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at this at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It is right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Now, the real point in this story is the older brother. The real point in the story is the reaction of the Pharisaical, the religious leaders. You see, Jesus in his mind had no problem with a man being a sinner because we all are. Are we sinners? Is there any doubt in that? All have sinned. But the Pharisees, you see, in their mind, in their religious system, they said, no, I keep the law. Because they looked only on it outwardly and they interpreted the law in such a way where they always came out smiling like roses. And so Jesus, in one of his first messages, the Sermon on the Mount, said, Hey, you haven't killed somebody. Oh, that's right. <laughs> you know, I've been able to keep my anger in check and I've been able to walk away. I've never killed anybody. He said, Yeah, but have you ever been so angry that you said, You idiot! God marked that down in his books as you killed somebody. Now, you say, don't commit adultery. Oh, yes, I haven't. I've kept myself pure before God. And oh, yeah. Well, have you ever lusted after somebody else in your heart? Then God in his books wrote down that you've committed adultery. And Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, and they freaked out just going, oh, man, you know, there's no way. This is impossible. Remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus. Oh, there's something I lack. Oh, good teacher. Your problem is you don't have knowledge. What do you mean? You called me good. What's your definition of good? You see, his definition of good was he was good. And Jesus was good. And Jesus says, no, God alone is good. Now, Jesus wasn't saying he wasn't God. He wasn't saying he was good. But he was making it clear that this rich young ruler wasn't good. And the problem was he didn't have knowledge. And Jesus uses the law by saying, go sell everything you have, give to the poor, come follow me. Law number one, have no other gods before you. This young boy had gods before him, his money. He went away sad. And they said, the apostles said, this guy's a lot better than us, Jesus. And if he's not going to make it, what about us? And Jesus said, with man it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Salvation cannot be attained to by man. Man and his good works can't do it. 
Now, this older son, out of his own mouth, speaks of his own heart. First of all, he's saying, me, my, you never did it for me. So why was he doing what he was doing? To please the Father, for glory to the Father, to honor his Father? No, he was doing what he was doing so he would get the glory, so he would get the inheritance, so he would get ahead. It wasn't to glorify God. It was for self-centeredness. Why are people in religious works? It's for self-centeredness. Robert Murray McShane a Presbyterian minister in the 1800s was out passing out tracts and he handed one to one lady and she says, young man, do you have any idea what position I hold in the church? And he said, no, and it will not matter on the day you stand before Christ. But that's the attitude. You have any idea how zealous I am in my religious service? Who gives a rip? It doesn't matter. But the older son is saying, Hey, I've been religious. I've kept my grounds. And then what does he say? His own heart reveals it. This son of yours went out and spent all his money on prostitutes. How would he know? <laughs> the young son went away to a foreign, to a foreign country and, and they didn't know what was going on with him. How did he know the younger son went and spent his money on prostitutes? He didn't know. All he knew is what he would do if he had a bag of money in a foreign country. He revealed his own heart, you see. His own heart was full of sin. Although he stayed home with the dad and remained in the religious form, he was still as wicked as the younger brother. And he comes back and he says, hey, the bottom line is, is he's found. The younger brother for the first time is saying, Dad, I am sorry for my sin. I have done wrong. Remember there in Luke 18 where the Pharisee and the tax collector, the guy who owns the F Street bookstore, the guy who's the pimp, they're praying. The Pharisee and this pimp is praying. There in, in verse 9. And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Low as down as you can go. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus. Notice, with himself. <laughs> didn't say he prayed to God. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. If you go up to a Jew and say, you are a sinner and are transgressing against God, you'll probably get smacked. How dare you say, I'm a sinner? I remember when I was in college, I was delivering prescriptions to elderly people up in Point Loma. And this one elderly lady, God really put on my heart, 
as I knocked on the door to witness to her and I gave her prescriptions and and I shared with her that God came to save sinners and that she was one and she needed to repent of her sins and come to Christ. And she looked at me going, young man, you have the most negative outlook on life. I've been a Mormon for 30 years, you know, and, and went on. And I said, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter what religion you have been zealous in or sincere in. Have you confessed that you are powerless over your sin? That you are enabled by your sin? That you cannot attain to righteousness on your own? That there's only one way of salvation, and that is as a free gift from God. If there was a way to gain salvation by good works, or by baptism, or by church membership, then Jesus Christ died needlessly. Think about it. If Christ didn't have to be brutalized in order for us to have forgiveness of sins, then why would he have died? And for man now to come and say, oh yeah, you know, receiving the cross of Jesus Christ is one way, or good works is another way, or being religious in a church is another way, yeah, all of these are good ways. Think about that. God sent his only son to be brutally tortured, pierced through, beaten. His, his face was no longer, according to Isaiah 52, even human looking. Because that was just one way to make it. There's no way. Jesus in the garden said, Father, if there's any other way, let this cut pass from me. There is no other way. Jew, Gentile, it does not matter. There's only one way of salvation. And it's through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 17, in verse 3, he says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's eternal life to know God and to know him how? Through his Son. There is no other way that men can make it under heaven except through the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. And if you read the gospel, it's very clear. If you just read, start in the book of Matthew and read through the book of Revelation, that fact is over and over and over again a very clear point. Man in his own good works is not going to save himself. And the Jews... The religious Jews are the most zealous people I've ever seen in the world. I, we were on a plane going over to Israel, and they pray several times a day. You've, Jesus talks about it, you know, how they prayed. Well, there on the 747 going over, this one particular rabbi made it known that all his followers, there was about 50 of them on the plane there coming from New York, it was time to pray. And they all got up, filled the aisle, stepped right, you know, here's a guy sitting in the seat, the guy stood right here, and the rabbi's back here in the seat, and all 50 of them are just flooding the aisles. The, the stewardesses had gotten about half of the food out, and they were just there blocking the aisles. They wouldn't let anybody go by. They had like this, make sure you couldn't get by, to make sure that everybody noticed them praying, and they stood there for about an hour, and the stewardess were saying, get out of the way. The captain came back going, I'm going to 
put you guys in prison. This is a federal law. And just, they wouldn't budge. They wouldn't move. And then soon as the hour is up, they all went back to their seat. And there they expected a meal that was on a plate that had never been used before. Plastic silverware that had not been touched by a Gentile had to be kosher silverware in kosher plastic on a kosher plate. Everything had to be kosher. And the Gentile could not touch it. And so they had to have a Jewish stewardess come and bring it to them and make sure that it was only her that had touched it. And then they would eat. It was the most radical thing I'd ever seen. And boy, did the Bible come alive to see them uh, in all their zealousness, thinking this is the way they're being approved of before God. Zeal, sincerity won't save you. It's the truth that will save you. Man is truly a sinner, and there's only one that can take away sin, and that's Jesus Christ through his cross and resurrection is the only way man can be saved. And in verse 3, for they being ignorant of the right God's righteousness. Now, if you know how righteous God is, you know that you can never attain to it. God is perfect in righteousness. There is no flaw in God's righteousness. And so he goes on to say, seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So they were still through the law trying to establish their own righteousness. Now, he makes it clear. Moses writes about the righteousness which is in the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. So, if you want to be made righteous by the law, you could never have broken any of the laws ever. None of the laws could you ever have broken. Not even once. Now, is there anybody here that has not lied? We've all lied. Have we all dishonored our parents? Have we all lusted in our hearts? I mean, we can go right down, and if you're honest, you've broken all ten of the commandments. But yet, if you've broken one of them, maybe you were eight years old, and you realize, I'm dishonoring my mom right now, and I feel bad about it. That's it. You've broken the law. Now the law can have no good for you. And in Galatians 3, he made it clear the law was to tutor us to see that we need a Savior. Now your righteousness, the Bible says, is as filthy rags before God. Stinky, filthy rags. That's your righteousness before God. All the good works you could ever do will never make you right with God. That's what the Bible clearly says. And so they, not understanding how they need to be perfect as God is perfect. Jesus said there in Matthew 5, Therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How could you ever be that perfect? One, you could never have started the pattern of, of sin. But you already have. So it's too late. Okay, well I can raise my child up. <laughs> and try to make them so they live a perfect life and make it to heaven. You'll never make it. Because what does the law in itself do? The law and our flesh, they repel each other. The law makes us want to sin. If I said to you, nobody can touch your nose tonight. Nobody even think about it. Keep your hands in your lap. Don't touch your nose. 
Now everybody's going, oh, my nose. I need to touch my nose. It's just, it's just now we want to do it. Whatever we say is the law. All of a sudden we say, why not? Can't we? 55 miles an hour on the freeway. Oh, I think I can get away with 65. Nature. And that is the way we are. So again, the law is not going to help us. But yet, if you're going to make righteousness according to the law, you've got to know the law. And you've got to know it well. But every time you're studying the law and reading the law, to know the law better, it's actually pushing you to sin. Because every time it says, thou shalt not, you're saying, why not? I want to. What are they keeping me from? I've got to try it out. That's, that's the law. So again, the man who does these things shall live by them, but he can't. Because one, you have to have kept it perfectly. Two, the law itself pushes us to want to sin more. And in verse 6, but the righteousness of the faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So again, if it's very obvious. God's Holy Spirit is in the world convicting men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, John 16 tells us. And if you can just sit here in a, in a minute and think about it, it's obvious that you are a sinner. It is obvious that you, in your own efforts, cannot make yourself right with God. And there is no way that you can ever receive God's heaven by Him owing it to you. So what do we come to the conclusion is? That Christ is the fulfillment, the end of the law for those who would believe. Look back, if you would, to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's all it is. The deeds of the law were never going to be made right with God. All it is is the knowledge of sin. And turn over to Romans chapter 8, if you would. There in verse 3 and 4. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sinning his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So God's righteous requirements are going to be fulfilled in us. Now what do we learn later about the law? Is that even if you kept the law, it would add up to a big fat zero. Well, God, I didn't kill anybody. So? <laughs> I'm not going to take you to heaven because you didn't kill somebody. Well, God, I didn't commit adultery. So what? You're supposed to be pure anyway. That's a big fat zero. The fact of the matter is, is we're not 
just not supposed to kill, that we're supposed to love one another as Christ has loved us. We're to even love our enemies. We're to pray for those who he spitefully uses. So not only we're not to go into the negative, but we're just supposed to be way up in the positive. Not only are we not supposed to kill people, we're supposed to love people. Not only are we not supposed to not commit adultery, but we're supposed to be pure and holy before God. And so what do we discover later? That even if you could keep the law perfectly, which nobody ever has and nobody can, it would have added up to a zero. That beyond that, there's the righteousness of God that we have to attain to. And of course, that comes through the knowledge of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit living in you. Look at chapter 6 of Romans, if you would. Verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. And he said, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. So now in this relationship with Jesus Christ, I have attained of his righteousness by faith. He who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of Christ. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, he, through the washing of the water of the word, might present us to himself, a church without spot or blemish or wrinkle. So not only does he give us the righteousness, he helps us maintain the righteousness. And so, one, I didn't attain to it. God gave it to me. And now, not, it's not him going, here's the righteousness, now, don't taint it. Don't mess it up. Don't get it dirty. God says, I know you. <laughs> you still fall in sin. And so although I've given you the righteousness, I'm also there keeping it maintained through the wash, washing of the water of the word. And so, again, the concept of the law is you've got to get there, and once you get there, you've got to stay there. The grace says you can't get there. Let me give you it. And now, after I've given it to you, I know that you can't even keep it after I've given it to you spotless, so I'm going to keep it spotless for you. One, based upon man's efforts, man's zeal, man's strength. The other, based upon God's grace, the gift given to him, and his continual mercy and forgiveness and grace every single day as long as we live. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, turn there in verse 15. To the right, a few pages there. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. Having abolished in his flesh, Jesus Christ, the enmity, the war, that is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So Christ took the law and he abolished it, fulfilled it, took care of it. So am I pure? No, I'm not. But Christ became purity for me. Am I holy? No, I am not. But Christ has given me of his holiness and he said, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. I'm going to be there. I will one day be holy as he is. Why? Because I am his son. Just like my kids look like me, because they are related to me, so I now am related to him and I shall look more and more like him. And one day, as John says, we don't know what it will be like, but we will be just like him. 
holy and pure and righteous. Why? Because of our works? No, but because of his grace. And in Colossians, look there, chapter 2, verse 14. Colossians, chapter 2, verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting, the law of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now we look at the Ten Commandments. We look at the laws in the Bible. We look at the New Testament example that they're constantly given us how to love one another and to walk in purity. And do we make it? No, we don't. Are we making it better than we did a year ago? Yes, we are. Are we walking stronger in the Lord than we did 10 years ago? Unbelievably so. God, by His grace, is getting us there. And so we don't say, oh, well, I can't do anything about it. No, we can do something about it. We can walk in the Spirit rather than walking in the flesh. We can seek the face of God rather than seeking the face of the world. We can walk near the Lord. And as we're going to see on in Romans chapter 2, we are expected to grow in faith, expected to grow in the love of God. We are expected to grow in our relationship in Christ, and it does hinge upon our freeness of will. But not salvation. Salvation is a gift of God that we, in the freeness of the will, respond to it, and it's given to us by faith. And so if we say, well, I'm going to go into heaven, that's where I'm going to get it. No, that's to bring Christ down out of heaven. He's already ascended from heaven. He's already come to earth. He's already lived the perfect life as a man. He's already died in our place as a man and as God. As we read in Hebrews, because he was 100% God, whatever he did would be good for all men for all times. And because he did it in the flesh, what he did would be for all men. So Christ died once for all men's sin to be, to, to be forgiven. Or to say, well, I'll go down into the pit of the, of the earth. No, Christ has already done it. He died and he was three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. It's already been done. So it's not in your heights. It's not in your depths. It's in you receiving by faith what Christ has already done. And that, folks, is evident to every human being. You have to reject it. So right now you say, well, what about those poor pygmies in New Guinea who don't even know about Christ? One, New Guinea has been preached for hundreds of years, as well as Africa. I don't know a place on our globe where the gospel isn't preached. However, if there were such a people within time, and there probably was, even they had the conscience of God that they weren't right with God, and they couldn't be made right with God, and that they needed a Savior. You can get some books, some missionary books that are awesome, where these natives came to this conclusion before the missionaries ever got there. And they were crying out to God for salvation by faith, not of their works. And it's pretty radical. And so again, man knows. Every human being knows he's a sinner. Every human being knows that he cannot make himself right with God. He doesn't have the strength. He doesn't have the character. He doesn't have the power. 
And even if he could start doing good, he knows he cannot maintain that good works the rest of his life. He knows he's holding on by his shoestring. And every man knows there is a judgment in which he will be judged, held accountable for what he has done, and he knows his account is going to be bad because he has lived such a sinful life. Everybody is rejecting that information. It's clear. It's evident to them. They know it. Whether they're raised in a church or not, they know it to be true. And they are rejecting that. It's near them. It's even in their mouth. It's in their heart. And if that man will surrender of his will and say, Forgive me, God. I confess. I agree in my mouth that there is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you believe that it's his death, his resurrection in which you're saved. Then you will be born again. And in verse 10, For with the heart one believes to righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame or confounded or be made afraid. So if you have believed on the Lord, you will never be in a situation to be ashamed before God on that day of uh, when you're accounted before God according to what you've done in your word, uh, in this body. You won't be ashamed on that day if you put your trust in Christ. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon his name. At the foot of the cross, it doesn't matter who you are. You as a human being have the same complete access, religious, non-religious, Jew, Gentile, sinner, prostitute, pimp, goody two-shoes who's gone to church your whole life. It doesn't matter. Everybody receives God by faith. We have all sinned. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, if you think about it, it's quite interesting. Because God in his book looks upon the heart. So we could see a serial killer who had hatred in his heart and killed people. And let's say we found a serial killer at the age of 30. And we've seen each time his heart was red hot with hate and he actually killed somebody. And let's say he killed 50 people. And so there in God's books are 50 murders. You're a murderer. Now we look at you at the age of 30. And 50 times in your life on the freeway, you said, you idiot! Flipped him off, cussed at him. You told your sister or your brother, I wish you were dead. I wish... Mom and Dad never had you. You told the neighbor, drop dead, you freak. And God has up in his book 50 murders. And so when the books are open, the consequences on earth are much greater from being a, a serial killer, from saying somebody you hate them. I agree, the consequences on earth are very different. But before God in his books, the God who doesn't look on the outer man, but the God who looks upon the heart, he sees not a whole lot of difference in condemnation. But again, it only took one time that you said, you idiot, I hate you, I wish you were dead. Is there anybody who never said, you idiot, I, I hate you? I mean, I think we've all done it. And so again, is there this giant 
difference between a religious person trying in his own good works to be approved by God and has shown some restraint or a person who's shown no restraint and just like the prodigal son who just said, hey dad, I'm tired of waiting until you die. Give me the money. I'm ready to get out of here. Which is just, my goodness, how horrible this young man was. But yet he came back, he repented. Jesus said of another parable, there was two sons. He said to the one son, go work in the field. And the son said, right away, dad, I'm going to go work hard for you. And he just went and goofed off all day. And the other son, he said, go work in the field. He goes, I'm not going to work in that field. I'm not a slave. I'm not a servant. I'm not going to do out there, you know. And then he repented going, oh, that was so disrespectful. That was so wrong. And he went out and he worked in the field all day. And God said, which one of them will be approved before his dad? Not the one with lip service, but the one with heart service. The one who truly in his heart truly repented, truly had remorse and had fruits of repentance in his life. It's not the person who resolves to be a good churchgoer and who says, I've met a lot of good friends down there and I'll sacrifice by letting go of some of the worldly friends and gain some Christian friends and has learned to tote his Bible around and even learned to read it and even learned to talk Christianese and can even tell you whether he's pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib. But it's the person who truly in his heart says, God, I am a sinner. I have sinned against you. And you had to die a brutal death that I would be forgiven because I'm such a heinous sinner. Truly, God, I am wicked. Truly, God, I am a pervert. Truly, God, I am evil. Truly, compared to your holiness, I deserve to go to hell a hundred times over. Please forgive me. And you put your face to the ground, you beat your chest saying, God, I am a sinner, forgive me. I can do nothing about it. If you show mercy, then I am saved. If you show no mercy, I'm damned to hell. Lord, if you forgive me, then I am forgiven and I have everlasting life. Lord, if you choose not to forgive me, there is no hope for me. I can do nothing about my sinful condition. And there as you give your life and surrender to God, now God begins to shape you and mold you by the power of His Holy Spirit into His image, and you become an obedient child, not out of selfishness going, oh, look at me, I'm more holy than you, but out of just a love and a respect and an honor saying, God, you're so good. To save such a lowly worm as myself, you're so good to forgive all of those sins and to constantly be forgiving me of all my stumbling, misfit ways daily, picking me up, daily dusting me off, daily washing my feet, daily forgiving me. I wish I could say, God, I, I love you so much and I'm so sorry for all of my sins. I'd like to say, God, I'll never sin again, but I know I'm weak. And I know as much as I don't want to sin against you, I know that the things I don't want to do, I'll do. And I know in advance, your mercy is already there. In advance, your forgiveness is already there. In advance, your grace is already there to pick me up. You're too good. But yet my heart says, I don't want to sin. I want to live a holy and a righteous life, giving you all, the first of everything of my life to be yours. That everything, every moment of every day, every word that I would speak, everything I do to be to your glory. That is the heart of a person who is truly born again.
let go of all religion. Let go of all religious systems. No longer the tall ceilings and the burning of candles and stained glass windows, which not, are not found in the Bible at all. No more religious robes. No more confessional booths, which are not in the Bible at all. No more last rites. No more calling a man father or priest, not in the Bible at all. But we would fully, by faith alone, throw ourselves at the feet of God and believe he's a God who loves us and justifies the ungodly by faith in him and in him alone. Like the thief on the cross. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He confessed. He had a kingdom, so he has to be Lord. And he believed that he was going to come, future tense, into it. So he believed that Christ would raise from the dead. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Not of him who wills, not of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. That's how salvation comes. Sanctification is where we say we need to respond to the goodness and the love of God. And we need to say to one another daily, let us not sin. Sanctification says exhort. Actually, the word is provoke, irritate one another to love and good works. And that's the work as we'll continue to go on in Romans. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. As truly as it is near us and in our mouth, that this is truth. We are sinners and can do nothing about it, but there's a God who loves us and has done everything about it. Everybody's head bowed here tonight. And you're here this evening going, man, I've never by faith alone received God. I've never just said, I'm a sinner and I need you in my life. And I want to do that tonight. I want to leave here knowing I'm right with God because of His goodness and His grace. I want to know that tonight with certainty. Raise your hand right now. Humble yourself before the sight of God. God bless you. Oh man, a number of you. God bless you. Right now, just pray. By faith, He hears you. He loves you. He's looking at your heart. And just in your heart right now, just pray, Dear Heavenly Father, I am a sinner. I am wicked. I am evil. And my ways have separated me from you, my pride, my stubbornness, my self-will. And I know that the wages of my sin is eternal damnation. And truly, I do deserve to go to hell a hundred times over. But I know that you love me. And that you, by a horrible death and crucifixion, have paid the penalty of sin and have already paid the penalty of hell already in my place, that by faith in the work that you did in dying and raising again, I could be saved. Come into my life. Be the Lord of all of my life. I give you all. No longer living according to my will, my wants, my desires, but as I read the Bible and do exactly what it says, that's the way I will live, by your strength and your grace. Bless all those who have heard your word tonight and strengthen them so much. In Jesus' name, amen. One second.